Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my co-host and friend, Sean Ross. Sean, how's it going? Update on the food poisoning. I'm over that. Uh-huh. But I have to say, I know this is not what this podcast is about, but I've taken quite a blow this week with the loss of Sinead O'Connor, one of my all-time favorite artists. It's it's troubling. It's devastating. This is what this podcast is about, because I was going to bring that up, because uh, when her death happened, I you know, was frequenting your Instagram page, and I saw you posting a lot of the tributes about her. Your curiosities often become my curiosities, and I'm always really enthused by your passion. I mean, you got me into Alanis Morissette in a way that I... I'd always loved her, but you sort of uh, helped me discover a new love for her. And so I saw that you really had a deep connection with Sinead and were very affected by her death. What was your initial reaction to finding out? Well, it's... Sad to say, but I've been sort of waiting for this moment for a long time because as people have probably discovered or may have known that Sinead has been, uh, you know, significantly troubled by mental health for the past couple of decades. I mean, I think throughout her whole life, but it's been quite public in especially the last like 15 years. And she did Dr. Phil and and she did Oprah in the late 2000s and, and opened up quite a bit about it. And then there were several uh, periods where um, she had, you know, episodes where she disappeared uh, or was pleading for help online, uh, psychiatric help. Uh, and then, of course, last year in January, uh, her youngest son took his own life, uh, and she was quite open about how that was affecting her. And so, you know, there's been a lot of uh, close calls with Sinead, I think, in the past. And, you know, as sad as it is, it, it always felt that this was inevitable because she was not getting the help that she needed. And that was clear over all of these years. You know, my reaction to the 
the reaction to her death has been surprising as well because I never expected to see the outpouring that I did see. I thought in my mind, having followed this artist for uh, you know 20 plus years of my life, that she was so niche now and uh, so sort of like under-discussed that I didn't think that she had the appeal that she had beyond just nothing compares to you, which of course has very, very broad appeal. But I was surprised to see the emotion and the grief that I did see on such a wide scale. There's often this sentiment online when instances like this happen where people are like, well, where was the love when this person was alive? And I'm wondering how you feel about that in this instance, because I can completely understand that perspective. The counterpoint to that being, well, if they couldn't find her while she was alive or couldn't show her the level of respect and regard she deserved, at least they're honoring her um, after her death. I can obviously understand it's a complicated conversation, but is there a part of you in seeing so many people sort of coming out and showing love and affection and reverence for her? Is there a part of you that finds not comfort necessarily, but like appreciates that? Or do you more fall under the, the mindset of like, well, where have you been? Yeah, I'm sort of conflicted about it because, I mean, I think that everybody who posted a tribute, particularly her peers, I was very moved by those tributes because I didn't expect as many as as came. And uh, all of them moved me. And I think that everybody sort of like justified uh, her legacy, her impact on the music industry, her impact on the culture uh, that we exist in today. And I really appreciate seeing that. I don't necessarily feel like where were you because I think that Sinead's, you know, troubles in life were far greater than that her music wasn't appreciated or that her legacy wasn't appreciated. I don't think that that's uh, what she was struggling with. She was actually quite happy with the state of her career post SNL. So, you know, I, I feel like I feel like there's a lot of focus on sort of like the the trailblazing that she did as a pop cultural figure, and that's important. But I also really hope that people shine a spotlight on her work, which is, I think, just as worthy of conversation. To that end, for anyone listening that's like compelled to not necessarily do a deep dive, but, you know, get into the world, is there a song or two that you can recommend to people that you feel is just quintessential Sinead or just must listen to Sinead? Yeah, well, I would say that her 2000 album, Faith and Courage, which was so long after the SNL incident, and it's a it's it's sort of like her second full-length original album after that event, is such a strong album and continues sort of all of the themes that she was touching on in her early work. I think there's really incredible songs there. There was a single called No Man's Woman, which is so emblematic of that time, the sort of Lilith era and sort of like being an independent woman, and it's super catchy and it's just like a great pop rock song. And there's another single from that called Jealous, which again is sort of just like great sort of breakup song um so those and then there's a great song on that album called daddy i'm fine which is more like an origin story of Sinead o'connor sort of like leaving her home and going off to be a rock star and so go check out faith and courage it's a perfect album top mm. to bottom one last thing about Sinead that I want to touch on briefly is, you know, we're talking about the outpouring of tributes. And I think it's notable, 
you know, when a, a big celebrity dies, it's not uncommon for other celebrities, especially those that knew them or worked with them to come forward and make statements. But I think the who is speaking out in this instance is very particular because we're hearing from a lot of people that we don't often hear from. Like for instance, Kate Bush and for instance, Morrissey. And I know that you and I haven't spoken about this yet, but yes, we both read Morrissey's statement, um, which is one that's received a lot of attention online, uh, both for and against. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on Morrissey's statement and the way in which he chose to pay tribute to Sinead? <laughs> it's a rare moment for Morrissey in the modern age where I do feel he is right on this one. Uh, that, that sort of like boiling down Sinead to an icon or a legend in a tribute post uh, after her death seems unfair or trite to him. And, you know, I, like I said, I feel conflicted about this because in a lot of ways, I feel the same way. At the same time, I do think that there is a power in that and that, you know, at least people are doing that. And at least uh, people who not just uh, were around for Sinead's original, you know, uh, appearance on the scene, but also a younger generation is discovering Sinead. And I, I've always felt like, I think I even raised this in a previous Shut Up Evan episode when we were talking about the Pamela Anderson documentary. I encouraged people to go watch Nothing Compares, the Sinead documentary, which was released, I think, at the end of last year, uh, which is available on streaming. Uh, because I think that Sinead really needs to be recontextualized because after the SNL incident, people stopped talking about her, even when it came out that she was right about the Catholic Church and its complicity in covering up child abuse. I really think that she hasn't been given her due in the mainstream culture to really recontextualize not just her work, but her activism. And I, I hope that people do that. And I think that some of these tributes will lead people to do that. Absolutely. Well, from Sinead O'Connor, hard pivot to, and just like that, yes. <laughs> I think it would be difficult to try and make any correlation because I don't think these two things could exist at more opposite ends of the spectrum. I wanted for us today to touch down on, and just like that, more holistically, for people that don't know or aren't listening, you and I are recapping episode to episode on our sister podcast, Drop Your Buffs. But we haven't really done any proper conversation on sort of like where we situate the show on the whole. And I thought this would be a good check-in point because we just finished episode seven. So we're somewhere in between like the halfway and two-thirds mark on and just like that. And interestingly, you began your Sex in the City slash and just like that journey here on this podcast, more or less. You'd seen an episode or two, but it was here on an earlier episode this season where we discussed the pilot episode of Sex and the City, timed to the 25th anniversary of the show. And now we've been recapping and just like that, and we're in it, you know? Sometimes we don't know if we want to be, but we have made the choice and we double down on the choices we make, similarly to the creator of the series, Michael Patrick King. I guess what I wanted to start by discussing is the number one thing that I get asked about this show by people is whether or not it's good. I think why people tend to ask me that is because I purposefully share my meme caps without giving any commentary. I make the memes and the caption is always name of episode, written by, directed by, and I kind of like to create a space in which others can weigh in on what they think. And sometimes that informs even what I think. 
But now that we're here right now, I guess to answer that question, is Anne just like that good? It's a difficult question to answer because simply, is Anne just like that good? My answer would be no, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) And I could watch this show at nauseum in perpetuity. I can't get enough of it. It's the easiest sort of like metaphor to give is it's kind of like a car crash where you can't look away. And yet I do feel like there are moments throughout this show when I do feel like we begin to cook with gas. I can't not recognize the greatness that is Sarah Jessica Parker's performance as Carrie and Cynthia Nixon's performance as Miranda. I do appreciate the big swings that this show takes. I do appreciate some of the fashions that we see. For instance, that, you know, the bomb cyclone scene in episode six with both Carrie and LTW in the air quotes snow. And more than anything, I like talking about this show. It is a show that I find to be incredibly digestible and incredibly worthy of dissection. So let me throw that question to you. Is and just like that good? No, it's not good, but it doesn't have to be good. To your point, it reminds me of there's a lot of shows like this, right, that are very watchable. And the fact that they're not good necessarily, or they're not wholly good, uh, means that there is so much fodder to dissect. And there's a lot to talk about. And it reminds me of some shows that I've really loved to watch and stuck with for a very long time, like Melrose Place comes to mind. Was that a good show? No, but I watched the hell out of it and I can still talk about it. Uh, Desperate Housewives comes to mind. Uh, You know, one of my all-time favorite films, Spice World, comes to mind. That is not a good movie, but will I watch it a thousand times and absolutely gag? Yes. I actually don't want all of my media to be good. Absolutely not. But there is a way that I think in present day, people tend to consume, quote unquote, not good media through the lens of camp. And I have to say, I don't find and just like that campy. No. I understand that there's sort of like a camp lens that one can put on the viewing experience of and just like that. But and just like that as a product unto itself is not camp. No, it's not made with the intention of being camp. No, in fact, it's made (laughs) with the polar opposite (laughs) intention. And I think that's one of the most difficult needles to thread in this story and what makes it so unique is that the source material is so different both tonally and just qualitatively from this sequel, uh, expansion, whatever you want to call it, series that is and just like that. And surprisingly, so many of the original people from the thing that is so beloved came on board with this one. So it's not as though this is some sort of reboot in the sense of like a reimagining. This very much is from from and by the people that brought you Sex and the City. And yet there's something about this show that feels like a fever dream. But then like here we are season two halfway through where it's like prolonged fever dream to the point where it's like you're awake but the dream continues and so you're just in like a constant state of hallucination. Uh Uh-huh. 
top level, what do you think is working best about And Just Like That? I think the character of Carrie works very well. As somebody who didn't know Carrie two months ago, besides just being exposed to her through pop culture, I find Carrie extremely compelling, extremely charismatic. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker steals any scene that she is in, and I find her incredibly watchable. And I am somebody who just... I'm not familiar with Sarah Jessica Parker's work. I am familiar with her as an actress, but I've just never really sought out a lot of her work. And I think that's because I wasn't a Sex in the City fan. I find Cynthia Nixon similarly to be very, very watchable. I would say a great actress. Uh, I think she sells a lot of the emotion of this show. And I think that they really make this show work, period. I'll leave it there. (laughs) And I think, too, <laughs> particularly when Sarah Jessica and Cynthia share screen time, the alchemy of the two of them together and how much they work as singular forces, but there's a power in their joint sleigh that the few times that we are treated to them together in the same room really, really does pop. What's working for you? What's working for me is just inherently being able to spend time with the girls. And I think what's working for me is like, I think this show is full of big swings and I think that like some of them I'm grateful for and think work. I mean, to reference once again, like the bomb cyclone, um, the scenes of LTW and Carrie trudging through the snow, although they didn't really fit into the world of the show as we know it, it felt like it was creating this new genre within this show And it was a genre that worked for me. My friend Johnny described uh, those scenes as sort of drag-esque, like high drag. And I was like, yeah, this is sort of like what I imagine the girls on RuPaul's Drag Race would use as inspiration for a runway. Like there's just moments in the show that I enjoy. And then the other thing that's working for me is all of the ancillary stuff around the show. So for instance... There's the And Just Like That Writer's Room podcast. There is my friends Lori and Chelsea host the Every Outfit podcast. My friends Dan and Brendan discuss the show on their podcast, Come Through Queen. I just enjoy hearing people talk about this show and then going back and watching it through the lens of others. That is a uniquely joyous thing that I've not experienced with any other show before. So I just find like my opinion of the show to be like, always sort of forming and changing and I like that feeling I like how my lack of definitive feeling on this show I like that sort of uh, uncomfortable space of unknowing yeah I can appreciate that now (laughs) perhaps the easier question what's not working I mean, I feel this is obvious, but we just have far too many characters. We have too many characters to follow that I don't know. Obviously, this is a this is a me problem that I don't know these people because I haven't watched and just like that season one or the broader Sex in the City universe. Although I understand a lot of these new characters came in for and just like that season one. But I feel that, you know, and I don't want to boil this down to just there's too many people, but it's it's beyond that, that there's there's too many characters to follow and they don't seem to care about them. And so I think great a great example this season of that uh, is both Lisa Todd Wexley and Naya, where uh, Lisa Todd Wexley's storylines have been, I would describe them as 
bizarre, confusing, in that there's really no conflict in her stories that I can pinpoint. And therefore, I'm finding it really hard to be invested or to care about her character. And then Naya, who I think actually does have the seeds of a really interesting story of sort of having a divorce after a very long marriage, uh, figuring out life on her own. And in this last episode, we had this moment where you know she makes a, a souffle and sort of celebrates Valentine's Day on her own, which would be a really sweet moment if it had been earned in any way. I don't know anything about her because she gets maybe three minutes of screen time each episode, and, I, and I'm and i wondering why. It, uh, it's feeling like we're wasting a lot of time or that the time is being mismanaged. It's almost like what should be a moment, which is like her making a souffle, becomes an entire plot line. So we have like this scene of her on a Zoom call giving the exposition of like, I'm gonna make a souffle. Then we get the scene of like her at the bookstore with Miranda. Shout out to Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. Uh, we have the scene of her with Miranda being like, I gotta find the, the recipe book for the chocolate souffle. Then we get the scene, Miranda before her date comes in and what's Naya doing? She's preparing her souffle. Then we come back to her later in the episode. What's she doing? She's enjoying her souffle. It's just sort of like a lot of steps and toward what? Because we understood early on that what this device is trying to do here is say, Naya is single now, does not have her ex-husband or a man in sight and is content. We are not invested in the character of Naya enough for this alone to be a compelling storyline, especially when we're contending with characters like Carrie and Miranda, who we both know and love. On the topic of there being too many characters on this show, will you indulge me? Can you name as many characters on and just like that as possible? Yeah, I can do that. So we have Charlotte, Miranda, and Carrie. Okay, so those are our three OGs. I'm killing time. Uh, Naya, Lisa Todd Wexley, Che, Husbands. There's one other one within that bunch, but before we go to Husbands, think uh, Blowout, uh, Penis Pump, Birkin, Massage. Seema, how yeah. could I forget okay, Seema? So, <laughs> so, so we've got oh. seven. Uh, so we've got them, and then we've got some husbands kicking around. We've got uh, Harry mm-hmm. is the husband of Charlotte. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the husband of Lisa Todd Wexley, I'll never get. Herbert. Herbert. I knew it was another age. And so that's fine. We have the ex-husband of Naya, who I'm sorry, I can't name. Andre Rashad. Andre Rashad. Andre Rashad. Uh, Well, there's... Oh, uh, Bitsy Von Mufflin. Okay, but wait, still on the husbands, we also have a Miranda ex-husband. Steve. Steve. Okay, so... Brady is her child. Brady. Okay, so we're going to children. (laughs) Yeah, Lily and Rock. Okay, we've got Brady, we've got Lillian Rock, yep, yep, yep. We have Herbert Jr. at Lisa Todd Wexley's house. Uh Uh-huh. She also has two other children who either have not been named or who we've not touched down on enough to really, to know their names. But but, but LTW's got the three kids, yeah. Yeah, sure, I believe you. And then we have Jackie. Uh Uh-huh. And Jackie's wife, the designer. Uh Uh-huh, do you remember Jackie's wife's name? Uh, Where there is blank, there's fire. Smokey. 
Nope, just just smoke. Yep, there you go. Okay, we got it. We got it. Okay, so if we have Jackie and smoke, I'm proud of you for circling back to Jackie because that's one that I think can get lost in the sauce. You had named another one before I cut you off to go back to the husbands. Oh, Bitsy Von Mufflin. There we go. Okay, great, great, yeah. great. Uh, we've got her. Love her. Uh, we've got. Well, there's some people who have come and gone, like like our, my dearly departed Franklin from the first two episodes, mm-hmm. Carrie's love interest. Mm-hmm. We have Aiden who just showed up in yep. this episode. I think I'm nailing this so far. No, you're doing really We had well. Amelia who was uh, Miranda's uh, woman of the week this week. Okay, some other ones we have. Oh, Anthony. 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 Well, but that leads us then to Giuseppe. Giuseppe and of course, Drew Barrymore and Ross Matthews. Absolutely. The hilarious Ross Matthews. And <laughs> I can't remember. So we have Tom, the uh, hot fellows bread worker who was injecting the HGH. Okay, now we're now we're getting a little deep. Well, I'm just saying. Okay, we also have Carrie's neighbor. Oh, we have Carrie. Carrie with a K. We have Carrie with a K. We also have Carrie's book editor, whose name I do not know. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. Che's ex-husband. Oh, I'll never get it. I know. It's slipping my mind, too. Should we Google it or do we move on? It's something like Jeremy or like Justin. No, it's not that. Lyle. Lyle. Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile. Okay, so then we have Naya's two friends who we were introduced to this week. So we had Seema's boyfriend uh, from earlier this season that she dumped. We had Seema's hairdresser. He came and went. Oh, yes. Is there anyone else within the world that we're missing? Yeah, well, there's a... Who's the lady that Cameron Burkine played? Did I just pronounce her name wrong? Cameron Burkine? Cameron Burk... Oh, Candace Bergen. Candace oh, my Bergen. God. Are you even gay? <laughs> Enid Frick. What did I say? Cameron Burkine? I'm not going <laughs> to dignify it. Okay, wait, which also leads us to, I mean, isn't that mean that... um. Feminist, <laughs> activist, icon, Gloria Steinem. Oh, yeah. Gloria okay, Steinem. Gloria Steinem is part of the end, just like that cinematic universe. Oh, the guy that was texting Carrie with the dick pic that Bitsy was trying to... Absolutely. He factors into all of this. Is there anyone else that we've had multi-episodes from that is worth... Yeah, well, the woman who ran the podcasting network that Carrie brought down by not reading one ad. The iconic Tony Award-winning Ali Stroker. Pardon me for forgetting her character's name, but I love you, Ali. We had the showrunner of Che Passa. Yes, yes. BD! Oh my God, justice for BD. Um, I think that's everyone, but like this to articulate that like, yeah. The receptionist at the veterinary clinic. Yes, who I have reason to think will be back. Okay, wait, then we have uh, Lisa Todd Wexley's son's girlfriend, Baxter. Baxter. Yeah, we can't forget Baxter. We have Lily's boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend, rather, who we didn't meet, but, like, you know, played a big role. Yeah, he has a name. He has a name. Yeah, he does. He's, he certainly has a name. Um, I think that that's everyone. There was also the cameo from Ludwig von Beethoven in poster form <laughs> in Lily's bedroom. Beyond uh-huh. that, I think that we've hit everyone. We've done a pretty good job. Wow. Okay. So another big thing, and I and I, I realize in having this conversation with you that you are not overly familiar with the character of Miranda, having only seen a handful of episodes of Sex in the City. But one thing that uh, a term that was coined by Lauren Garoni and Chelsea Fairless on their Every Outfit podcast, they call it the doofusification of Miranda Hobbs. And it is something I think about a lot. I think it's the biggest pushback from longtime fans of the show in feeling like on this show, we repeatedly see 
and have to grapple with the fact that Miranda, the Miranda that we once knew, seems to have vacated the body of the Miranda that's on and just like that. Now, one thing that MPK, Michael Patrick King, said when he appeared on Shut Up Evan is this idea of that is your, meaning the fans, that is your idea of Miranda. He and his team of writers, they write Miranda. Like, they are the voice of Miranda. So what they say ultimately is because they are the ones that created her. And there's, I understand the validity of his point, but I do think that being how overwhelming the response has been to feeling like, where is our girl? The cynical, sarcastic, biting, commanding figure that once was Miranda Hobbs. We now witness things, I mean, it happened in the first episode with her in the sensory deprivation tank. We get that moment at the comedy show where she's just in everyone's way all of a sudden. I just feel like there are so many instances in which Miranda is kind of the butt of the joke and I find it dissatisfying. What's been your experience of this character of Miranda? Because the most interesting thing I find is the uh, the fact that Cynthia Nixon is this incredible actress and the material, I mean, she's doing the most that she can with the material and yet. Yeah, well, see, I, I have no reference for the Miranda that people feel attached to from Sex in the City. So uh, I have no sort of like qualms with the character. I can see what you're saying. I do feel like Miranda is having an identity crisis uh, on multiple fronts, right? So, you know, on, on one hand, she's still very freshly out of a very long-term marriage where she has a child uh, in that marriage. And so I think that she has been trying to figure out her place in Che's life. That's where I've come into it, where they've moved out to LA and they're, and, and she's trying to find how, like, what is this new life I'm going to have? That was short-lived. Now that she's back and she and Che have broken up and she's sort of like going through not just an identity crisis, but a sexual identity crisis of what even am I? Am I straight? Am I a lesbian? Am I bisexual? Am I somewhere in between? Uh, and so I do feel like the, there is a level of not knowing herself that uh, I've been I've I've thought was very convincing like whether or not that's consistent with the Miranda we know from Sex and the City, I don't know. But I, I could see that given the massive shakeups that have happened in her life, I do think the way she's acting is justified, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it can be. And I really love this moment in the most recent episode where she's on her first sort of one and done encounter. She meets this woman. They decide to, you know, ostensibly have just like, you know, a quick fuck, maybe a date. It's hard to say what that was supposed to be and it doesn't work out. And I, I enjoyed Miranda having this moment where she's sitting in the apartment, her date uh, ha <laughs> covered in cat poop or cat poo as she says, and kitty litter has gone to the bodega to get quarters to then go get the sheets that are in their building that they had forgotten were there because, you know, if they're gonna fuck, they should probably do it on sheets. Um, I did appreciate Miranda having this moment of like, you know what, just go. Like, 
you are an adult woman, you have the autonomy of choice, you can leave. But I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite storylines ever from Sex and the City involving Marathon Man when Miranda is in bed with one of her men of the week and he proceeds to start wiggling his bare ass in her face as she's giving him a massage. And he keeps going higher and higher because he wants to get his ass eaten by Miranda. And Miranda's sort of like trying to avoid the awkwardness and then all of a sudden blurts out, I don't want to do that. And that's one of those moments of like, I watch him just like that and I'm like, the Miranda I know is comfortable expressing herself in a situation and knowing how she feels and being unafraid. The Miranda I know, or the Miranda I think I know, the second that Amelia walks out the door to go to the bodega, Miranda's right there behind her racing out the door. And the comedy comes from Miranda trying to leave the building right behind Amelia without Amelia seeing her. And then they get outside and Amelia finally sees her and Miranda bolts and then Miranda falls down on the street and Amelia has to take her to the hospital. And then they end up fucking in the, you know, the janitor closet at the hospital. Like there's so much like here, but it so often feels incongruous to the Miranda that we know. Counterpoint, counterpoint to this is that, like I said, Miranda's been in a long term marriage, very long marriage. Then she goes directly from that to this serious relationship with Che now she's re-entering the dating scene. She may have lost some of that confidence and some of that autonomy and, and feels awkward and feels like she is no longer in the position of power to make those calls for herself because she is in a different position in life. Totally. And that's such a good point because people and characters have regressions or people change in ways that are not always positive or, or for the betterment of their, their sense of being. So yeah, I definitely hear that. On the Che front, I think what's fascinating about Che, one is the decision from the writers to like double down and say, yes, Che is corny. We understand that. And we that is a choice that we've made. And it's a character trait of Che's rather than how people are perceiving the character. So I, I stand by the fact that I think there was some dissonance there. What I found interesting about the development of Che in season two is one of the most fun aspects of season one was like memeing out Che because Che was consistently just saying crazy things. The two that come to mind are the Hey It's Che Diaz and Miranda, I've done a ton of weed. This season, as I, you know, um, scour the episodes in search of Che moments, I find them to be few and far between. There's a seriousness with which the character of Che is now treated. And so what's left is a character that I find doesn't really work in this world. And more than anything, I just don't think Carrie and Che were more than coworkers. And so I'm having a hard time accepting the fact that the reason that Che is going to stay on this show is because they're going to be a friend of Carrie's. And that's just a pill that like, you can shove it down my mouth, but I, I'm not going to swallow it. I was surprised to see coming into season two, having heard a lot about Che on Twitter, that Che was actually like quite unpleasant uh, to watch. And their treatment of Miranda was so uh, irreverently nasty, kind of. And so I didn't find Che to be a sympathetic character at all. In fact, when they tried to make me sympathize with them through the failure of their pilot, uh, at that point, I was like, yeah, yeah, give it to them. Like, 
this is what they deserve. And so, so now to have Chase stick around and like somehow get a job at a veterinary clinic where apparently they've just left their shit for God knows how many years, which is also confusing because just because the pilot didn't get picked up doesn't mean that the that their career is in the tank. It just means their pilot didn't get picked up. So as far as Che's audience is concerned, nothing has changed. And so why can't Che just get back on stage and make some money? Anyways, all of this to say, I, I was surprised that Che was like, sort of not just like a, a polarizing figure, but just kind of like an unlikable figure in the show. The writer's room's takeaway from the character of Che, in their mind, they were like, we understand how people are receiving this character. And so we're going to pivot rather than if you're going to double down and keep the character around. I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like the decision that they made with the character of Che in sort of building out a plot that would show Che as the villain that they are, but also at the same time, try and humanize them by creating this storyline where it's like, we're watching Che fail professionally, and then as a result, have their life fall apart. I just am not, I, I, I'm not sure if that's where I want to spend my time, especially when I could be hanging out with Carrie Bradshaw, a character that I miss on this show because I don't see too much of her. Famously a side character on and just like that. Truly a side character in line with Baxter. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I want to touch down on briefly is just the continuity issues on this show. And this has been pointed out by a number of people, but it's particularly surprising because as I mentioned up top, there are a lot of the same writers that worked on Sex and the City have come to work on this show. So we have this big question of like, how famous is Carrie? Because she's famous enough to be emblazoned on the side of a New York City bus, as we see in the opening credits of Sex and the City. So for all 96 episodes, she has Matthew McConaughey interested in optioning her column for a feature film in season three of the original show. She gets a spread in Vogue for her wedding, creative directed by Andre Leon Tolley in the Sex and the City film, and is even invited to the Met Gala in the first episode of the second season of And Just Like That. And yet, she cannot get Enid Frick to blurb her book, She does not have enough listeners on her podcast to save the show and by proxy save the network. So there's just a lot of confusion as to like, how famous is Carrie Bradshaw? It remains a question on the minds of me and many. Uh, You know what? You've kind of blown my mind a little bit because so I'm hearing Matthew McConaughey wanted to option her column for a feature film. So now... This is, as we understand it, the second time that Carrie Bradshaw was in line to make a feature film. The first time she didn't show up to the pitch with Rachel Dratch. Yes. She's not in the movie business and she doesn't want to be. What actor played the character that delivered the news to Carrie that Matthew McConaughey was interested in? I don't know. Well, if I'm asking you this question, who do you think the answer is? Is it a woman or a man? So it's me, Evan Ross Katz, asking you this question. Jennifer Coolidge. Close. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yes. Stop. Yes. She played the junior account executive that takes Carrie to drinks to let her know that Matthew McConaughey is interested. Wow. I gotta watch that episode. You got to. Oh my God. Her <laughs> hair is everything. Uh, okay. So then we have the issue of like the Hamptons home, right? So it's like Carrie has a Hamptons home according to season one, episode one of Anne, just like that. But then in, you know, a few episodes ago, we have Seema and her looking for a rental out in the Hamptons with no mention of the fact 
fact that she has a home. Uh, in the season six premiere of Sex and the City, Harry tells Charlotte that he had to marry a Jew because he promised his dead mother that he would, yet on and just like that, he says his mother has been dead for 10 years. We also have the issue of LTW, who in season one says her father passed away the previous year, then magically appears in season two very much alive. And I bring up all these instances just to say that it's odd that you have such a developed lore that you wouldn't fact check some of this stuff when continuing to add on to the lore, especially stuff as simple as like Carrie having a Hamptons home, like that was a, a central plot point in the premiere. Carrie may very well have the Hamptons home and she doesn't, doesn't want Seema going in there. Then make that a plot point. I'm all for like hijinks and suing, but again, I just need recognition of these things. To that end, I so appreciate it in the latest episode when Aiden and her were like, it's been 13 years. And I like Googled and I was like, when did Sex and the City 2 come out? It's like 2010, 2013. I was like, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you to Samantha Irby, the writer of the latest episode of the series for saying like, listen, we got to get our facts correct. But I just, I am a continuity stickler, but there are times that they, they do beautifully recognize the show. I mean, for instance, Aiden referencing the walls inside Carrie's apartment when he returned to the show this week, which is very much a central plot point in his exit from the series in season four. I love that. So I am all for Easter eggs. Give me as many as can fit in the basket, but I want continuity as well. One more thing here on continuity is that Aiden may say it's been 13 years, but you know, to, to quote Kyle McLaughlin in the finale of Twin Peaks The Return, what year is it? Because time is flying in this universe. Time is flying and nothing is changing between the episodes, which is, is quite confusing. So we, uh, we went from summer camp uh, in one episode to Halloween in the next episode to Christmas time in the next episode to Valentine's Day. And people are answering emails over the course of months. Also, you mentioned Christmas, but like we didn't touch down on Christmas. We just knew it was like sometime in winter like the holidays we've chosen to touch down on our halloween which i can understand <laughs> yeah. and then we jump to valentine's day which is interesting because the sex in the city film is famously new year's eve centric cinema a birthday give one of the ladies a birthday absolutely so i mean i'm imagining at this point you know i i assume we're ending on memorial day if not fourth of july <laughs> maybe we're jumping right to yom kippur who who is to who's to say let's close out with me asking you this <laughs> do you want a third season? I don't care. Really? So, wait, wait, wait. So tell me, if you had four more episodes of this show, never to hear from these characters again, you'd wipe your hands clean. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be bothered. Sean. No. I, like, I just, look, look, Evan, like, I, I don't have a 20-year investment in these characters, so do I care? Uh, I, I see the, the entire and just like that universe as just I, icing on top of a cake. And maybe the icing's gone a little, you know, hard or... or, or it's a little sour, but however you feel about the icing, it's just on top of the cake. We've already had a cake, Sex in the City, so anything additional is just, it's bonus content to me. That's how I see it. If in the last four episodes, they sort of tightened the ship here and really focused on, you know, a few characters and progressed their storylines forward in a significant way, I would feel probably differently that I would want to see a third season to see these de characters developed. But I would say that, you know, despite everything that's happened for Miranda's life, despite Carrie's trajectory over the season, if you can call it a trajectory, uh, I do feel like from episode one to episode seven, 
I haven't seen a lot of movement uh, in terms of the characters or the plot. And so I'm left wondering sort of like, what's the point a little bit? And if I'm left wondering what's the point, then what's the point of further seasons? I understand like I am the minority of anybody who gives a shit about this show. So let me throw it to you. Do you need a third season? So yes, I need a third season. It's not a want. It is a need. Oh. Um, but <laughs> to that point, what I would love is some more thoughtfulness in the writer's room going into it around the arcs of the characters. And I don't think that it can be as simple as Charlotte goes back to work, Carrie gets back with Aiden. I'd like to see more of an effort to craft like long-term strategy around these characters and to have a little bit more of a sense of direction. I'd love to see a scaling back of the side characters. I'd like to see more focus on the core three. If I had it my way, I would have just cast another actress as Samantha and kept Samantha in the fold because I feel like more than I am missing Kim Cattrall, am I missing what I think having that fourth perspective brought to the table. But yes, I need more if for no other reason. If a month from now is the last time I'm going to see Carrie Bradshaw, I don't think I couldn't deal with that. And I'm not being funny. I'm not being funny. (laughs) And this is the thing, is that like, I see what you're saying about Samantha. And I hear what you're saying also about pulling back on the side characters. But I actually think there's a different solution here as an outsider. And that's integrate the side characters into the plot of the show. Yeah. So that they're, and, and I, I know nobody can replace Samantha, but it's like, if if we, if we're going to have these side characters and we're committed to them, which it seems we are. Oh, we are. Then let's have them be friends with the main characters and like really sit at the table and like be intertwined in one another's lives. Because I think that's what I'm missing is like, I don't care about these characters because they're not intertwined with the lives of the most interesting characters. But Sean, like they kind of are. Like Naya went with Miranda to Books Are Magic. That is not intertwined. Even the fact that Miranda lives with Naya, it has had no impact on the show whatsoever. Yes, it often seems like, I mean, even thinking about the friendship between Seema and Carrie, which I think is the strongest bond between an old character and a new character, even thinking of the latest episode with Seema going like full Karen at the uh, spa, that was very much, uh, it began as a Carrie scene with Carrie telling her that she was nervous to see Aiden. And then it switched over and became a Seema scene in which Seema freaks out at the receptionist at the spa. There was never anything that felt like the two of them were doing something together. It felt like we need to take care of business in this scene, which the business being have Carrie express the fact that she's nervous to see Aiden. And so we'll use Seema as the vehicle with which she can do that. So I get what you're saying more. It's like, we need to see them not just as scene partners, but as like plot partners. I mean, a perfect example of this is Miranda has moved into Naya's house. Both are recently out of relationships. This is why they're in this situation. We are not seeing them grow with each other and learn from each other in any significant way. And I find that that is such a missed opportunity. Right, like you want a scene where both of them bring somebody home for the night and have to contend with the fact that they both have a roommate. (sighs) Anywho, I am very eager to find out if the show will be back. I'm curious, we got a long period between 
season one concluding and the announcement of season two being renewed. I'm curious to see if and when we will get the season three announcement. I am going to, I believe in energies, and I'm going to put out the energy that this show will be renewed. I mean, it's got a built-in audience. I don't think they're going anywhere. Hello, me among them. So that isn't just like that. I'd love to know what you all are feeling about this season. Comment in my latest meme cap. That's another aspect of the show that I really do enjoy. Now, speaking of things that I enjoy, I'm so excited. You know, obviously, like being transparent for a moment, I had two very, very exciting guests lined up for the last two episodes of this season that I lost due to the actors and the writers' strike. They will be on eventually um, once equitable pay is reached for all in the Hollywood industry. Until then, though, I was like, where am I going to go? And then I thought about it and I was like, I got to go to the reality space, you know? And I was like, well, who do I want to speak to? And the first person that came to mind, of course, um, was the fantastic Delta Work, who obviously I'm a fan of them from Drag Race, but it's really very Delta, their podcast, where that love grew to, I don't know, what's bigger than love? Admiration. No, that's that's lower than love. It's hard to get like bigger than love. Worship. Worship. Okay. Yeah. I worship. I worship at the altar of very Delta. So anyway, without any further ado, here is my chat with Delta Work. Shut up, Eben. Delta, I gotta tell you of the requested guests that I get on this podcast. I hear time and time again, everyone's like, you got to get Delta work on. So I am so glad that we have been led to this day and that I finally have you here. I'm so happy to be here. I mean, when you came on very Delta, it was like, it was so weird because it's a long walk when I say something and we, and most of the time we don't get there and people are like, I need to cancel this ride. I cannot be on here any longer. But you were like, just however long it takes you to say it, bitch, say it. And then you would then just paraphrase it. And I'm like, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Now, I want to ask you, a former U.S. intelligence official told Congress during a hearing just a few days ago that what he referred to as non-human biologics were recovered from crash sites. He said he prefers to use the term non-humans rather than aliens. A Twitter user by the name of Will Kellogg tweeted, if the aliens are real, I do believe the first person to interview one should be Delta Work. So I got to ask you, are you up for it? I am up for it. I'm definitely up for it. And I think the way to make that connection is to start with the thing that connects all of us. And that is fast food. And I want to know, like, what's happening in the Saturn's onion rings. I want to know what's happening in the Milky Way. Like, I want to know because they have to stop for food, Right. And I think their intelligence obviously is so much higher that they could bring it down to our level. And they know that, like, at least in the United States, what connects people is convenience and convenient food. So that's where I want to start. Were you alarmed by this confirmation that aliens exist? Yeah, I was satisfied. I was satisfied that people were finally acknowledging something. Um, I think that this is like, obviously, they've been here. They, they, they know the adjacencies. They know why things happen, how it happened. We're basically playing in their game, I think. We're playing on their little field. Absolutely. Now, another hot topic I wanted to get your thoughts on is that Bethany Frankel has come forward recently wanting to start a reality TV star union amidst the writers and actors strike in Hollywood. And I'm wondering, as both a prominent social commentator and a former reality TV contestant, how you feel about that. 
You know, I wish I knew more about the union in general, like SAG-AFTRA. I know that it's necessary. I know that I'm 100% in support of actors and writers and makeup artists and, and any tech people, 100% in support of them. And I would take their lead before I would form an opinion just because I don't know enough about it. There was a point where I was going to be part of that. And again, the reality show game itself is very interesting, especially when you see it from behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. So I worked as talent and then I worked as crew. And I realized that it's something that you really do have puppet strings on you and people can decide for you whether or not you are going to be part of that. So um, I, that, that's all I know is from my personal experience, which is very limited. But reality show stars, I mean, I, I do hear now like the contracts and stuff for, for shows like Drag Race which again, I have no solid information on. This is all just rumor that a lot of those um, assets and things are are owed to the show and a lot of permission has to be granted for you to make appearances or do things like that. I recently saw a TikTok video of Tim Gunn talking about um, Project Runway and he did not realize how much of your life is owed to reality show producers when you are a contestant because, you know, we also realize as reality show contestants, and you're told, you're a contestant, but you're also a cast member. Yes, this is a contest, but we're creating a storyline. I'm with you. I, too, want to know more about unions, specifically sag how it all works. And one thing I've appreciated about this moment in time is people like Tim Gunn making these TikTok videos and creating a level of transparency around how things work. Because I think more when we, and I speak more for me, like the consumer of media, understand the structures and how things work, I think it creates more incentive on those in power to potentially change or, or create more equity in that industry because I think reality TV contestants, especially on a show like Drag Race, they're putting down a lot of their own money in order to compete on the show. And there's a real serious conversation to be had there about whether or not it's realistic and the financial barriers that exist uh, to enter some of these spaces. Um, your show, Very Delta, is described as the following, quote, Emmy award-winning drag queen Delta Work hosts this luxury public access podcast and YouTube talk show where she looks gorgeous, welcomes very special guests, and goes off on important issues that are Very Delta. I want to zoom in on the going off of it all because I feel like this, in my opinion, is where you really found your sweetest spot. It's not easy, as you know, to put a microphone in front of a person and have them go off. The only other example I can think of in the modern era that I think does it with your level of acumen is Wendy Williams. And I'm wondering how you decide on what it is to go off on and how you sort of craft. I mean, what you're doing is long form monologuing. What is that preparation process like? Are you spitballing? Do you have a game plan? Is it a roller coaster ride? And you get on and you, you see where you go. This all starts like from birth. I feel like I was, I'm an only child from a single parent and I'm an Aquarius. So those three things are super, super dangerous because that is the person who absolutely will find so many voices in their head and talk to those voices back and forth. And so, uh, you know, coming up as a kid, I, I was always left alone and I was always watching adult television, right? Like Love Boat was a thing for me, Charlie's Angels. But as far as like actually going off each day, that we do the podcast, it's really just the thing that's in my brain in the moment. And the problem 
that I find in doing it is that I always want to go back to certain things. And I'm like, I know I've said this before, but I just don't feel like any, I feel like people hear me, but I need them to listen to me. I need them to listen to my words. I need to understand why people are making a right turn in the street from the middle of the street. Why can't you hug the curb? I don't, I don't understand. Like, so, I don't understand why there's soda on the lid. I don't understand why the, there's no ice cubes in an iced tea. I say these same things over and over because I feel like, um, I don't know, people are interacting with me on Instagram and they're like, you're right. And I'm like, okay, well, did you tell anybody? Because I just went to Chili's or I just went to Applebee's and it's happening again. So we're not getting the message out there. And I'm saying it over and fucking over and I'm crazy and I know I'm crazy. It's usually, again, just whatever in the moment is pissing me off. Um, and I, I like the fact that there are other people, like-minded people, yourself, other people who have podcasts that are like, I've just, I've had enough. I don't know if it's clinical. I don't know if it's social. I don't know if it's, it's clinical. It has to be. <laughs> have you found validation in hearing from people like me and other listeners of the podcast in things that you might've formerly thought were your crazy thoughts alone and sort of had them co-signed by others that either say, I too am crazy, or maybe if enough of us are crazy, maybe we're not crazy. Right. Yes, that is the bad. The validation is super, super important because when we wake up every single day, we're like, this is the country we live in. These are the people who are running the country. And so we have to find these things that we can have some control over. The things that we can control, you know, generally involve our pocketbook or the things that we can say yes or no to immediately. And that's why, you know, I am constantly complaining about a restaurant or a store or um, traffic laws or things like that that I, that I feel like we should all be abiding by. I mean, I think our goal is to, to live each day as uh, ethical as possible. And so what happens is I think a lot of people, a lot of companies are like, people are grateful for anything. So just do anything and it doesn't matter. The workers realize that they are not being rewarded, compensated fairly, taken care of fairly. So then they're like, who cares? I'm just going to slowly quit here. I'm going to just do whatever because it doesn't matter. But then it's like, but you're shitting on the people that are coming in here expecting something, at least the minimum that that they're paying for. I don't feel like I'm crazy, but I just say that sometimes because I am I know there's people out there that, are, again, say, oh, you're, you're such bigger fish to fry. We've got so much going on in the world. Is that all you can complain about? No. It's not all I can complain about, but it is something I can possibly control. And it is something that I can, I know I can at least get to someone. Uh, I could ask for the manager. Is that a Karen thing to do? Yeah, maybe. But you know what a very Delta thing is to do is to uh, call the president of the United States of America and let him know that we're tired of $100 application fees. And he just tweeted that he's going to look into it. So, you know, obviously somebody's getting the message. And another thing that I really respect about you, you said this earlier when we're speaking about the sag after strike is you said, I don't know as much as I would like to know about this. And I think that a lot of people today have a hard time admitting or even recognizing in some instances that they don't fully know what they're talking about. It's okay to not speak about something that you don't know about um, it made me think, for instance, about the death of Sinead O'Connor. And I had all these impulses as I was reading about her to write something about her. And then I said to myself, Evan, 
you don't really know enough about her life. Why don't you take this time to read and consume about her rather than feel the need to espouse, you know, what you think about this? Because I think there's an impulse from a lot of people to be the loudest voice in the room. And I find, and I think this comes with age, because the older I get, the less I feel that need to put my opinion everywhere. These days I sort of say, there are a couple of things I know better than anything. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Just Like That. Those are the things I can speak to. But even nowadays with Drag Race, I, I even that's one of those shows where it's like, I am no expert on Drag Race anymore. I think at one time I knew everything. I don't, so I'm very happy to read versus speaking about things that I don't know. I, sometimes I hate these terms, but but they, they apply. I hold a lot of space for for people who, yeah, say, well, tell me more about that. I don't, I don't know. Like what, uh, what am I, you know, what's, what's wrong with this or that? Uh, how, how do I cook that? Am I cooking that right? I love that. But I, you know, I'm around a lot of different queen. I, I never thought I would be that queen in a room. That's like the old queen in the room. And I realized that, that in, in some ways I am because 20 years ago, I was around other people that we were like, Oh God, that's the old queen in the room. And I'm like, no, you are that person. But generationally, I think the viewpoints change because we've been presented with a different set of social issues, political issues, ethical issues. So, you know, I'm Generation X and it's a weird place to be because technically are closer to a boomer, but your viewpoints and you're still running around in, you know, Chuck Taylors and, uh, you know, tank tops. And you're like, wait, no, I don't feel old. Like, I feel like I'm still at this table for this conversation. I'm around other queens who maybe have not been, uh, around drag race or they don't specifically know people from drag race but they think that because they watch the show or they read something that that rumor is something they can run with so they'll say oh no so and so is going to be on next season or so and so said this happened and it's like well it's interesting that you would have so much knowledge and you're throwing that around and i'm sitting here absorbing every bit of that and i just think stop pretending like you know everything about it and give people a fucking break. Like, not everybody's in a fight with everybody. And this is not young queens or old queens. This is just people who are, are, are fans of drag race, which I think is wonderful. But there's, I say it over and over, there's a difference between being a fan of drag race and being a fan of drag. But there's also a difference between being a fan of playing with Barbies and playing with dolls. Like, they're different. I also think there's something to be said about being able to hold on to information and not feel the need to espouse it. So say you do know a queen that's coming on a future season, it's okay to hold on to that information and not feel like you need to hold some sort of power in thinking that you have knowledge that others don't. I got to tell you, I was at a show the other night. I ran into Andy Cohen. I go over to him as I do. And I, you know, I was like, the opportunity is now I'm going to pump him for some information because I have a lot of questions about what's going on in the Housewives cinematic universe. I got all my answers. I didn't feel the need then to go and disseminate them or tell anyone because it's stuff that no one needs to know. I What I took away from that was, wow, I'm so thankful that he is trusting of me that I can get the real deal without feeling like I need to go and spread this. And it's juicy shit, but it's for my ears only. And so I sort of, he described it on his radio show. He called me Vaulty. Had a long talk with Evan Ross Katz. Great, yes. I probably told him too much. Um, gossip. 
But he seems very, well, he seems vaulty. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I told you him can a tell him bunch of housewife stuff. Yeah, like, you can really tell him anything. stuff. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I think so. And it was one of the biggest compliments I've ever received because a younger version of me would have been like, I have the tea. I have the power of this tea. The older me is it's like, no, the power really is that I have the trust of someone with such knowledge that they feel comfortable coming to me and knowing that I can hold on to that. There's something special about that. And when I, you know, going back to that, you know, being in a room where there was queens talking about this information they had, which I knew was all inaccurate information. I want to like you and I probably, I probably would like you, but this like creating this personality on like, I have the tea, I have this information when I know goddamn well you don't makes me really rethink like who you are. Like I would rather be talking to somebody who's like, I, I, I don't really know much about that. Like, I would rather be talking to somebody who's the most information that they had was like what they truly, really authentically did that day. Like to me, that's more interesting because you're at least you're not fucking putting up this pretense. You know, I I'll have people that will interview me or talk to me and they'll say, like, tell me about your character Delta work. And I'm like, it's not a character. It's not. It's just me. Like I change my outfit. I put on glasses. I put on stuff because I like those things. I love the ladies from the lawn cone counter in 1992. I love. Uh, Paloma Picasso. I love, like, I love all of that. I love the lady from Dirty Dancing, the one that was like dancing and she had black hair and a backless dress. And she goes, Friday. I love her. I, I love these inspirations. These are the women that inspire me. Do I create a character out of that? I don't think so because these are all my viewpoints. Does being in drag give me carte blanche to maybe say a little bit more because I feel it? Yes. I think it's a different delivery. I think it's like writing a note to someone on a post-it and writing it on, you know, rose gold stationery and, and handing it to them. What about references? You talk about Paloma Picasso, for instance, or, you know, you mentioned Dirty Dancing and, and the woman with, with the, you said it was the back of her dress? Yeah, she had like a backless dress and she was like the, the rich wife of like the big spender there. And she was like the original sort of MILF. Like she was getting mm. you know, free dance lessons from the, the waiter. Yes, 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 so yeah. You know her, okay, right? so yes. The, the specificity of, of these references, I think a lot about young queens today and how often, you know, looking at Drag Race for a minute, you know, you have a runway and someone is like, I'm giving you Mugler or I'm giving you, this is Vivian Westwood, you know, or Lee Bowery. And they, they t or uh, in pop culture, for instance, I think about like Mean Girls, references that are sort of made so often that they lose any sense of meaning whatsoever. One of the things I've always been attracted to about you is your not only breadth of references, but the specificity of them. How do you define or describe that? I don't know if it's proper terminology, but when I was coming up, my goal uh, when I knew what drag was, was I wanted to be a female impersonator. And so to me, that was emulating all of those aspects from strong women, weak women, beautiful women, um, homely women. Anything that seemed to me to be sort of elegant, sophisticated, motherly. I have tons of people that will say to me, oh my gosh, you remind me of my aunt. And that everyone else will laugh. And I'm like, thank you. Like, thank you. Because you're telling me that I bring you some level of comfort. Someone that you could go to. You know, I'm on Cameo. And one of my favorite types of Cameo requests to get is, can you just let me know that everything's going to be okay? And I'll say to them, I'm going to tell you the truth, babe. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes it's a freight train, but sometimes it is hope, right? 
And sometimes we have to deal with the fact that we're going to get fucking slammed by a train, but you're going to be able to get up. I know that because I am not, I like to say that I'm a, um, a realist, but I know that I can be a fatalist for myself, but I see hope for other people. Right. And I know there's hope for me. These women that inspire me when I was coming up, it was definitely about television, specifically Charlie's angels. I saw these, this influx, like the three original angels, and then other angels would float in and they would all come in with their own sort of flavor, right? Like I always identified with the angel Kelly. Like I loved, I loved Jacqueline Smith. I loved the, so something she did with her hair and the hair seemed like the brick model. Like it was just brushed through, but it wasn't teased. But I was also raised around my cousins because I don't have siblings. My cousins were all at the time what you would call cha-chas, which were girls that were not cholas. They were cha-chas. They were party girls. And they wore their bangs teased up and hot pink lipstick. And to this day, I'm still looking to find the perfect tiki punch hot pink lipstick because I remember thinking, ooh, they were so glamorous. Like there was just something about it. I think of like Lita Ford sitting on a block of ice. Like that's a reference point to me. When somebody says, how much ice do you want? I'm like, I want to feel like Lita Ford on sitting on a block of ice. That's how cold I want to be. Like, what's the perfume? I want to open a window and scream egoist, egoist. That's how much I want you to smell my perfume. Gene Kasem at awards shows. Are you kidding me? Gene Kasem came in drag with Casey Kasem. Tova Borgnine. Can I tell you when I was a kid, my stepdad was at the Naval Hospital in San Diego and everyone kept saying, oh, Ernest Borgnine's here. Ernest Borgnine's here. And I was like, what's an Ernest Borgnine? What does that mean? I'm eight years old. I, what is Ernest Borgnine? And I remember we were sitting in the lobby and I'm, my feet didn't even touch the, the floor because I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs. And I look over and these double doors open and these two men walk in and this woman walks in and she's wearing a peach suit with peach high heels and she had like maybe like ecru stockings i remember they weren't her skin color they were lighter and she had this orange hair that was just brushed back with like a bit of a sort of pomp in it and she, her bag was a clutch and she walked up to the counter and she said i'm here to see my husband ernest and everyone turned around it was all older people and they were like that's ernest part nine's wife and i thought oh she looks so powerful everyone knows who she is she's so glamorous who is that and i remember not until years later when I figured out what a computer was and I was in high school and I was like, who was that lady? And I thought, I want to be Tova Borgnine. And she had this beautiful, gentle smile. And I remember she walked past and she looked down and she said, hello. And she looked at a few people and she just kept walking and it wasn't bitchy. It wasn't bitchy. It was confident. It was glamour. We need more of that. So much more. Who were the men, like your early memories of men that you were lusting after, who were like early crushes, the, the guys that really got you going? Still not knowing that I would eventually be in a place where um, we could explore so much of that, like in 2023, where we're, we're now in a place where we have confidants who can say like the difference between gender, gender identity, sexuality. I can remember in the early 90s watching VH1 and I was in love with a boy called Katie Lang. And I was like, who is this? Like this song, Pulling Back the Reins, it sounded so sexy. It was a time when like Wicked Games and like um, Fallen from the from Pretty Woman soundtrack, like those kind of songs were out that were like, Lily Was Here was a song and it made you just feel like my, my young hormones were going. And I was like, this is, this boy looks, he looks young, but I can tell he's grown, he's delicate. 
but he's masculine. He's soft and I'm in love. And I remember like later somebody saying, oh, that's a gender bender. And I thought, oh, really? What is that? Is that the name of the song? I don't know. And they were like, that, that's a girl. That person's a girl. I thought, well, you have to be wrong about that. The same, that was the same time I learned about RuPaul. And when people were like, that's a man, I said, that's not possible. That's just a French model or something. Maybe in France, people look different. I was a kid. I didn't know. Katie Lang, to me, still, like, reg regardless, I'm glad to be in 2023, where regardless of what you're told or what someone was assigned or whatever, that you can still say, like, that person makes me feel fucking great. And that is so much of the power of celebrity sometimes where it's not necessarily about us needing some sort of proximity to them. It's this sort of ephemeral power that they emanate that allows us to see something in ourselves through them. And I think that gets lost nowadays a lot because people, it's veered into like standum and this sort of um, deifying of famous people rather than understanding that they really can be light shiners in many ways. And it can really, the focus can be on what they can do for us that has nothing to do with them, but everything to do with them. And like I kind of, that's one thing I've always been so obsessed by. Now, you mentioned RuPaul, and I think what's so interesting about your long-winding relationship with Ru is, as you mentioned, you grew up as someone really looking at RuPaul at a time way before Drag Race. And I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you, know, you began as a fan of Ru, then you go on as a contestant on his reality show, then you end up working behind the scenes on that reality show, earning an Emmy Award as a result. And then you have what's my understanding is some sort of unceremonious falling out. I'm wondering how you look at it all in retrospect when you have these many machinations of both your proximity and your relationship with Rue. I always hate when people say like, oh, I, you can disagree with somebody, but but still love them or, or, you know, but there is a place where you can do that. And it's not, this is not a political place for me. Because it had nothing to do with politics. Well, it had nothing to do with like politics as far as government goes. But it, it did have to do with politics as far as uh, I would imagine a Hollywood machine, if that's the proper term. Um, I will always be in love with and respect the image of the supermodel, right? The image of the supermodel is a standard. You know, I say to people all the time, it takes very, very little to make RuPaul look gorgeous. And it takes very, very little to make it look awful. It really does. Um, RuPaul is the standard of beauty. What I had to realize is that I was respecting the work of a lot of people that helped create this image. Uh, Matthew, Zaldi, now myself, Raven, um, all these other people that, that go into that. Um, I can respect the, the beauty of that, the, the aesthetic beauty, and also separate the fact that this is a person who's kind of in their, the only person in that position. So like, when I think back at someone like Divine, Divine was uh, was doing things and didn't really have someone else in that realm to look at and say, well, but what did you do when this happened? Well, I don't know, because there's nobody else it was happening to. So with RuPaul, like RuPaul, when these ha these decisions have to be made, who's the other RuPaul? I mean, I, I that's been that's been raised to that position. Do I think there are other people like RuPaul? Sure. Jackie B, Coco Peru. Uh, you know, a million, million entertainers that I think uh, should be elevated to that status and are, of course, 
elevated to that status and revered maybe even more by our own community, but by NBC, ABC, you know, things like that. No, there's only one person. So um, it's a weird place to be in because I definitely expected more, but I shouldn't have expected more. You know, people say, oh, you, you shouldn't meet your, your idols or whatever. Well, I didn't necessarily meet my idol in that manner. Like I can remember going to see RuPaul in 1995, I think it was 95, 96 maybe, when she was filming the VH1 show here in LA. And my friend Gary took me to see that. And I went in drag and I made my own outfit. And I remember her coming up and she had um, napkins underneath her underarms. And she came over and spoke to the crowd in between the break. And she had these shoes on. And I thought, oh my gosh, those look so like elegant lady shoes. And someone said, I love your shoes. And she said, oh, these are Marc Jacobs. And I thought, how does that really tall queen have shoes like that, that are designer shoes, not like stripper shoes? And fast forward to working on the show and we were like unpacking everything one day to set up. And I thought, those are the shoes. And we jokingly called them the mushrooms because they were like a mushroom tan color. And so whenever she would get ready, we were like, ooh, is she going to put on the mushrooms? Is she going to wear the mushrooms? And later to find out, you know, Matthew liked Rue to be in a platform. So during that, like if, the only reason there would be a single-soled shoe was because maybe the dress wasn't long. It was too short. Um, so, you know, there's so much I can look back on that I think, like, I have such a... I, it was a fun ride, and I love it, and I miss it. I, I definitely believe that, you know, you're put in a place where you're supposed to be, and maybe that wasn't the place for me. I definitely know if I had continued working on the show um, in the capacity that I thought I was going to work on it, I would be owning my own home right now, not renting my home. I don't think RuPaul disliked me per se. I think that RuPaul was just like, this is a machine. This is how this works. Uh, I, I don't owe you anything. And I really, I don't want to spend my ethics on you. I'd rather spend it on people that I think I'm going to have long term with. So fuck off. I remember, I think it was 2019 when you appeared on Willem and Alaska's Hot Goss segment of their podcast. And I was blown away by your transparency in walking through everything that had gone on. As you point out, I think a lot of people, in some instances there's NDAs, and I think in other instances people wanna stay in the good graces of this show and, and hope to return for an all-star season. And in doing that, they sort of recognize, I gotta mind my P's and Q's. And it's not as though you weren't minding your P's and Q's because you were incredibly thoughtful about what you spoke about. Um, but I was just so moved to hear your story because it was something that I didn't know. I didn't know everything that had gone on. When you went on that podcast and you sort of shared your story, your truth, I'm wondering how you felt afterwards. And I'm wondering if you heard from people that didn't know that maybe had distanced themselves from you or that you hadn't heard from that came to you and said, Delta, I empathize with all that you went through because you were really put through it. No, I didn't. Um, none of that happened. Uh, uh, the people that have always supported me, supported me through it. And the people that are, are um, conditioned to not liking me anyway, for whatever reason, looked at it as, oh, you took another opportunity to keep talking about this thing. Like, why don't you just get over it? There was no, and I said, I'm never, I, I'm never going to stop talking about it. I'm never going to feel bad about talking about it. And I will always answer people's questions because, you know, this will be a risky comparison, but I'm only making the comparison because we're sitting here right now and it just happened. People were very, very unhappy and turned their cheek on Sinead O'Connor when she spoke up. When she said something about an organization that people have been told, no, that has nothing but good for you. They said, 
we were going to boo you. We don't want you to perform here. We don't want you around. And then there were, of course, the people who always supported her who continued to support her. So I only bring this comparison because nobody else came and said, you know what? I didn't like you. But after hearing this, this has really changed my opinion or, or, or made me think a little bit more. No. But once things started falling apart, when people are like, oh my gosh, this transparency, when we hear about fracking or we hear about all these different things uh, happening, people are like, oh, well, I heard this is happening and that's really shitty. I just sit back and I file my nails and I'm like, you know what? I'm not saying shit. I already said what I said. And if somebody asks me, I will bring it to the table and I would love to continue the conversation and I always will. But you all are going to find out sooner or later that the things that you love and the things that you revere are not always exactly as they are. But I'm not telling you that I have to be your favorite, but like fucking punch on. Stop with the constant like, this is not true. Is it not? Like, wh why, why wouldn't it be? I went back and listened to that hot goss episode that I mentioned. There was one detail about it that I was a lingering question mark in my mind. And I'm asking you about it now. And if it's sort of like a, a non-starter, we move on. But it was my understanding that you and Raven were friends and that you went into this endeavor together. You were both former contestants on this show who had been elevated to continue on in the show, but in the behind the scenes capacity and really were the first two that we saw do this. And I believe to this day, the only two to do this. It's my understanding that you and Raven no longer have a relationship. It seems like, can I say from my vantage point, that the road diverged, Raven made the choice to be a part of the machine, and you, and I don't necessarily know if choice is the word, but that you were sort of forced off the machine. And I'm wondering from your perspective, having this former friend who it sounds like doesn't speak to you, I'm, I, I, can you illuminate anything about this friendship? We've been friends since... Mm maybe 2002 and have done a million a million different things together after like drag race we've traveled places together when we worked on and, and i'm talking about like doing nightclub shows so we would travel to like louisville we did shows together or we flew to the uk to shoot the pirelli calendar where rupaul was the queen of hearts and um when all of this transpired and you mentioned like choice not choice there there was a choice involved definitely and there was also a, an ousting at the, at the same time. And the ousting had to do with the specificity of the choice. When we were moving to go into AJ and the Queen, the, 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 the storyline was, you have to be a union member. And uh, we said, okay, how do we do that? And they're like, well, you have to have your union hours, which you can get from being on the show. And then you have to pay your $5,000. And I said, okay, well, I don't have $5,000 at my disposal. And they said, well, you have to have $5,000 to join the union or you don't work on the show. And I said, okay, well, I've always worked on the show with a star request. So let's get the star request together. And anybody doesn't know what a star request is. It has to do with a clearance so that you can work on a show without being a, a union member. And then there's all the specificities of that, which we were not given privy to. So um, with that said, I said, okay, well, then I guess I'll just muster up the $5,000 comes out of a savings account. Let's do this. But I didn't understand why it sounded like I was the only person that was pushed into this corner when I had just won an Emmy for the show. And when I say for the show, because they decide whose name moves forward on the show, you don't decide. So if they want to put 37 hairdressers on that didn't do anything, they can do that. Um, when we did go into AJ, the other storyline was I said, well, now since it's a different production and a different production company, 
um, what days do I need to be there? Because on Drag Race, you would only have to be there technically on the days that Rue was in drag. So we went into AJ. They said, well, you'll be there every day on the call sheet from beginning to end. And I said, but if she's not in drag, what will I be doing? And they said, you'll be doing hair on the extras. And I said, no, I, I won't be doing that at all. They have other hairdressers for that. I do the star's hair. And, you know, I was mostly in a hair room and um, Raven was doing makeup with Rue. So it was with Rue all day to create sort of that bond and that understanding of one another and that sharing. I was not involved in that sharing. So there was going to be a disconnect all the time. And we have to also understand that you know, during that transitional time, Rue did not lose like a makeup artist and a hairdresser that could be replaced. She lost a best friend who helped create her quote unquote character. Um, so somebody needed to be back in there to help relay decisions from production, from RuPaul to production. And they don't want a bunch of people running in and out of there. And she doesn't want that. So she needs a go-between. And it happened to be a really good makeup artist, an excellent makeup artist, who she now trusted and could now also operate as the go-between. And that's and that that's really a job description that really wasn't listed, but they wanted to feel out which which one of these people could do that. And I think they realized the person who's literally inside your mouth all day is probably the one we're going to trust the most. The other one that creates hats out of hair, um, we can get a lot of people to do that. There's a lot of wake shops on Hollywood Boulevard. Just grab one of those and it'll be fine. So that relationship with, with Raven, yeah, it dwindled because what well, dwindled, it, it, it went away. She said something one time that I always thought was a fun joke, like a silly joke that we would say until I realized it applied to me. And that was... Um, she used to host a show at, at Mickey's in West Hollywood every Monday. And the girls all clamor there because it's the busy show. And so girls from out of town always get booked there, especially from Drag Race. And one was sitting in the audience one day and was trying to get her attention and just didn't get her attention. And they happened to be working together two nights later. And that person said, hey, I saw you at Mickey's. You didn't see me? And she said, no, I saw you. And she goes, but you didn't say anything to me. And she said, oh, no, honey, I saw you, but I don't see you. And I always joked with that. We would say, oh, girl, did you see so-and-so? Oh, girl, I don't see her. Not about that person, just about random things like the waitress or the this or the that until this happened. And I realized it's a, it's a really sobering and, and, and hard pill to swallow when you realize that you had this friendship with somebody and they didn't have that friendship with you. Like they did not feel that way at all because they were willing to throw it out. Like I didn't expect, again, um, somebody to be like, yeah, well, I'm quitting my job too. None of that. Cause she didn't make that decision. This had nothing to do with her, but it's sad because I realized I would have at least thought coming up to that, like proverbial fence and saying, Hey, I know you're on the other side of that fence, but I'm on this team right now. I've got a family to feed. I didn't make this decision. I hope, you know, I didn't make this decision. I hope great things for you. I, you know, I don't want to keep key or like post negative things about them, but just know like we're good, even though I got to work over here and I love what I do over here and I've made really great friends. Go, go do your thing. Go fly. I don't know. It's, it is, again, a tough pill to swallow. It feels ugly. It feels definitely ugly when you realize, like, I look back at pictures all the time. I, I love to put up a way back Wednesday, a throwback Thursday, a flashback Friday, and I pull some up and I'm like, oh, bitch, remember when we were wearing? And then I'm like, don't post it. Don't post it. Like, what for what? Like, so people can tag her in the post. You know what I mean? And say like, how come this, how come that? Like, I think this is the right platform for this. This is a place where I can truly give a conversation and answer a question. Whereas in just a picture posted of a good time to me, other people would say, 
oh, you're just trying to stir shit by not answering a question. Are you the kind of person that if when she were to come to and recognize, you know, this friendship that existed and and could exist again? Are you the kind of person that would be desiring or, or willing uh, to see that friendship reblossom? No, because I'm ethical, but I'm also petty. I don't fucking ever forget. And this wasn't because it was that difficult. I'm petty too. Um, I have a question from a fan of yours who wanted to call in. Hey, Delta, it's Cheyenne Jackson. How are you? Um, well, you know I've been on the show a bunch of times and I'm friends with a bunch of people over there. But first and foremost, I am a fan of the show, of you. I know that you are the first Rue girl to ever win an Emmy, so mazel. My question for you is purely from the standpoint of being a contestant on the show. What would you say was the best part of being a part of RuPaul's Drag Race and what was the worst part? Love you. I love that. I, I actually, I remember seeing Cheyenne the first season that we uh, worked on the show and I remember he was walking to wherever they have lunch and he was so friendly and so handsome and so kind. Best part for sure um, is the fact that I, after all these years, um, I feel like I left with really solid, valuable friendships. Just as someone who watches the show still, I, I, I love watching. I love all stars. I love, I love every bit of it. Um, when you watch and, and someone beats someone in a lip sync, there's kind of this thing where it's like, oh, it's going to be, you know, they're going to hit each other or whatever. And some of the best, best uh, long distance friendships, for instance, like me and Phoenix, we Phoenix made it a point when she was uh, running some of the shows in Atlanta to get me out to Atlanta. She was like, I'm going to get you here. I want you to do a show here. I want people to see you. And uh, Mariah is to this day one of my dear friends. And we joke about all the time about the, the, the memory of the lip sync. And I remember me and Raja were like in the workroom laughing and talking. And, and they have uh, cocktails in there at the time they did. Um, uh, un until the fist fight, which is another storyline um, that, that not everyone knows about. Um, but we were, everyone was like, why are you, Delta, aren't you going to learn the music? Aren't you worried about going home? And Raja was sitting on one of those pink tables and throws her head back and goes, she's not going home. How could she ever go home? Baby, we've been performing this song since we started doing drag. There's no way. And of course, part of me was like, Mariah is, I will bow down. Mariah is one of the most stunning people I ever saw. So if they were setting home on looks, she looked way better in that challenge and she was gorgeous. So yeah, the friendships from that um, and even people that I don't talk to really much at all. But when I do encounter them, I'm so excited for like Shangela, the person that everybody questioned, the person that everyone was like, you know, yeah. And at the time, should she have been there? Of course, we're still going to go back on that and say, you shouldn't be here or whatever. But look where she is now. <laughs> you know, she cultivated this what she had that a lot of us did not have at that time was a point of view of her personality. She had a point of view and she had something that was marketable. And what is marketable is a brand, a point of view, a sense of finding joy and humor in things, right? Worst part about being on the show, I mean, it's a credit to be on an early season. Naomi Smalls always says, oh, we have single digit credit. Like we were on all the early seasons. But the, the bad thing about that is when the new people start watching the show and they're like, ew, what were you wearing? Like, why would you wear that? And I, of course, look back and I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's all we had. But I think that's what makes the early seasons so great 
is that there was a resourcefulness that came from it and it wasn't so focused on the glamour. For me, it was more authentic to drag. And there are things that I wore on the show. Like I can remember looking at that purple jumpsuit, which I thought was great and is wonderful for a meet and greet. But in 2023, that is not a runway look. That is just not, it's just not. And I accept that. One last drag race related question I want to ask you is, you know, when you had Dita on the podcast recently, you talked to Dita about whether or not she, you know, she would be interested in returning for All-Stars, which is something that I spoke to Dita about when she was on this pod, because people are always hankering to have Dita, one of the best lip syncers of all time, if not the best, back on the show. Now, similarly, people are always clamoring to have you back. I would recognize that it's probably not something that you are overwhelmingly interested in. Is there a part of you, though, take the behind the scenes out of it. Is there a part of you that would want to return to the show solely to have a chance to compete as your 2023 version of yourself? A million percent. I think about it all the time. Like I said, I, wa I watch All Stars and I'm like, what would I wear? Like I'll sit with my partner and I'm like, what would we make for that? Like how, how could we be different? And when I look at Snatch Game, I'm like, oh my God, missed opportunity of Abby Lee Miller. Are you fucking kidding me? Marguerite Perrin, the God Warrior. Some of these are spelled out for you. And RuPaul even says that to every single cast of characters. Find what's in your wheelhouse already. What's already there? What spells itself out? Where do you already come from? And then give us that because you'll already be sitting inside there banging your way out. I would love some all-star season that compiles you and Pearl and Willem and the girlies that are not going to be coming back into their own version of All-Stars. I'm just, you know, I'm willing it into existence. Something I think about with some of the girls is like, if we were on All-Stars together, what would our team be called if we were on teams together? And there's so many dangerous combos out there that people don't realize are actually friends in real life. But because they look at their two aesthetics, they're like, why would they be friends? But then when you see them together and they're like interacting, you're like, what? Like myself, and even though, you know, we all know she's the winner of Drag Race Bible Girl, like myself and Bible Girl, people are like, there's no way those people have anything in common. And we have every, everything in common. I do just want to say, though, I'm so proud of you for carving out your own lane, for finding this massive success with Very Delta. You as well have a point of view. And I think what's so gorgeous to see is that your expression of said point of view is being seen and heard and received and loved by so many people. And so I just really want to tip my hat to you because it's like no one is doing it like Delta work and it, it needs to be said. I guess I'm just that person that even though I say like I have the same opinion in or out of drag, I feel like people know me because of drag. So I feel like Whatever the occasion is, if a picture is to be taken or whatever, I like being in drag for it. I really do. I love posting social assets. I love post posting old pictures. I like posting pictures that I fucking over edit, under edit, bald, like whatever it is. I, I like it because I think that's what I do right now that um, it I think it's about that. Like I, I want people to see, even if it's just like a little bit of a variation from the last look they saw. I want them to know that like I'm still constantly drawing from like a barista I saw who was just every time I see her, she has on glasses and I'm like, I need to wear glasses because I'm loving it. Or I just like being on people's podcasts and drag. I like talking and drag. I have a good time with it. I really do. I love when you do your Instagram lives in drag. And it was like during the pandemic, I think at one point, 
and I logged on to your live and you like called out my name and like it was such a huge deal for me hearing your voice that is so familiar to me saying my name so I bring this up just to say anyone that I'm sure everyone listening is already watching very Delta but anytime you see that those double circles on Instagram when Delta is live that is like re required viewing I love when you go live Okay, two last topics if you have a second that I just want to get your opinion on. Okay, so right now everyone is talking about Barbenheimer. Uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer just opened. I'm just curious, you know, you are someone with a great love and appreciation for dolls. Uh-huh. Have you seen Barbie and whether or not you have or haven't, what are your thoughts on Barbenheimer, this sort of like uh, monolithic cultural moment we find ourselves in? I have not seen the Barbie movie yet. Yet? Question mark? Yeah, I, I'm going to see it for sure. But I am always, 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 always fucking late to any cultural phenomenon. Any, anything. And I don't know what it is or why it is because I have the phone sitting at my fingertips. I have never seen a Lord of the Rings movie. I have never seen Harry Potter. I thought they were the same thing forever. I truly did. And it's not because I think I'm above it. I think I'm afraid that when I get into it, I'm not going to understand everything as much as everybody else does. And then I'm going to feel dumb. Like this, this is going to be TMI. And this is going to let people know how much I don't mind you knowing how stupid I am. I don't even know what the Oppenheimer movie's about. I couldn't even write you a cover sheet about it. I couldn't fax you a cover sheet with the who, what, where, when, why, and how. I couldn't. If you told me it was the 40s and it was about a butcher, I would believe you. And if you told me it was about like... <laughs> Uh, a child who worked in a, in a steel mill in 1910, I would believe you. What if I told you it's about both of those things? I mean, I, I would probably watch it if it was about a man, but probably not a child. Because I, you know, in this day and age, baby, I can't even click on a TikTok video and save like a funny sound. If there's, I know there's a child in the video because I'm afraid it's going to be reported to the FBI that I'm saving children videos. I'm like, I'm not. I wanted the sound. Like, I, I couldn't find that. I, it's the first time it popped up in forever so yeah um i don't know enough about it but i i, I love uh you know we have that other I, I have a podcast called fierce rivalries where we just covered barbie versus brats which is interesting because someone just posted a video on tiktok that brats are secretly placed in the barbie movie and there's four girls sitting at a table that don't like Barbie. And their names are all the names of the original Bratz doll. I did not know that. This could all be a lot. Listen, I get my news from TikTok. I get my, my medical advice from TikTok. I'm going to die stupid with an enlarged heart because all of my information comes from there. You see, that's why I know that I'm no good. <laughs> I can't. Well, I can argue that you are good, but I can't argue with TikTok not being a great source of medical information. I mean, and also a lot of good comes. People learn about crocheting or all kinds of things from TikTok. Okay, one other hot topic I'm curious for your thoughts on, and I've always been curious for your thoughts on. It's something that I have a strong opinion about and never know the time or space or place to discuss. OnlyFans pricing. I have an issue. I think $9.99, which is more or less sort of the, the regular price, it's not right for the quality and the amount, the output of the content. But also, I even remember like in the early days of Sean Cody, $20 a month, which is more than the OnlyFans, but you were guaranteed a certain number of videos at a certain production quality. If you had faves, they were going to pop up. You were going to get to see them. This guy is performing with this guy. Oh, we're going to switch it up. Now he's performing with this other guy. Oh, maybe they're going to threesome. Maybe... 
we're sending them on a trip. You know, we'll get an orgy, another guy who here's a newbie. These days, I, I guess I have issue with the amount of times that I get baited into subscribing to someone on OnlyFans, either because I'm a fan or because I want to support them. And then I get on there and I'm like, this is what we came for, this? I'm wondering what you think about the current OnlyFans industrial complex, because I feel like to say anything negative like I am could be perceived as slut shaming. And I'm all about, you know, people getting their coin but I don't love the pricing. Is it like a, everybody has to be $9.99? Is that the deal? No, it's more or less that like, because so many people are $9.99, that's sort of become the understood base pricing. There are variants. You get your $5.99s, you get your $19.99s. So I'm getting this, so you're not like an OnlyFans subscriber. I looked at two of them. I've subscribed to two of them because there were people that I was working with where everyone was like, you're not going to believe this. You have to go on there. And I was like, okay, but the reality, because like, you know, we work with go-go dancers and stuff. And so I would go, but what I experienced that immediately I was like, goodbye, I'm cool, even though I'm sure it's not across the board, but it was enough for me to be like, I'm fine, um, was subscribe for free. And then you subscribe for free and they're like, this is the one to sort of tease you into what you're going to get over here. But I went to the paid thing and then the paid thing was like, $27 to unlock this, unlock that. I'm like, wait, so you're not getting naked on this one either. So which one, So you're not getting naked on anything. I know when I style a wig and I put it up for sale, like I want, it, I want to make the money I want to make, but you are in fact getting a product. You're getting something. So if I'm paying $9.99 and I never see your cock, I'm going to have a problem because I want to see meat. Yeah. I would rather be doing $2.99 per video and sort of have it be a little bit more a la carte because my issue right now is putting down the $9.99. And mind you, it's $9.99 a month. So the hope is that that would sort of be in perpetuity. $9.99 a month when the content is either not of the right quality or, or not at the right frequency, that to me is where I take issue. And to your point, there's a very popular model on OnlyFans who is $20 a month who then has, you know, more or less preview-esque content. And then you got to go and spend 30, 40, 50 to unlock the other content. You know, I'm Boo Boo the Fool. I'm the one, you know, hitting subscribe. But I just want a restructuring. When I first heard about OnlyFans, I thought it was like, I didn't know originally that it was mostly a nude thing. I thought it was like a place which I later learned is what Patreon was. Because of having the podcast, I get a million people that send me messages, like, and I love it. I try to keep up with them. A lot of times, because I don't look in the request folder, I don't always get that. Um, but I do get emails from people, and there are plenty of quote unquote like straight cis people who identify that have a proclivity for big, beautiful women, and then they didn't realize that there was a, a niche carved out where there were big, beautiful women with a secret and so then that gets even more exciting to them and then what else gets exciting are big beautiful women who have a secret but they really look like girls to them i realized somebody was like how come you don't sell, sell pictures of your feet and i was like my feet why would somebody look at that and they said just give it give it give a little gander at footfinder.com i typed it in and it said men women high heels and i went wait a minute Hold on a second. I sit behind a desk and you never see me from here down because I don't really need to be dressed from there. I'm undressed, but I'm not 
you know, I'm not wearing what looks like this. I'm wearing like cargo shorts or whatever, you know, because you saw. Um, but I thought I have a shit ton of beautiful shoes that I never wear ever, ever, ever. And I thought, what if I made an account like that and I took out all my beautiful stockings that I've collected and I just did these shoes and nobody specifically knew who it was because all they saw were like feet walking around on hardwood floors and posed. And then maybe occasionally you were like, is that the very Delta desk? Uh-huh. Maybe somebody would buy it. Shit, I don't know. It would be like, I'm in drag from here up for this. And then I'm in drag from like here down for that. But you never see the middle of the drag. Would you be charging a monthly or would you do it a la carte? Oh, I don't know. I think I have to run this through you. Okay, well, we'll discuss. Okay, before I let you go, can you tell people, people that want to support you, obviously they can tune in and watch on YouTube or listen on any podcast app to Very Delta. But how else can people support you if they, if they want to fiscally support the doll? They can uh, visit me on Instagram as like my main platform. And I finally created a link tree. I know it sounds like old, but like I had no idea what it was. Because people had asked, you know, when I decided I was moving from an apartment to a house, they were like, oh my gosh, we should have a virtual house warming. And uh, I've always heard people say, even before all this, link your Amazon wish list. And I did it really, I've, I've heard of people doing that, but I'm like, oh, no one's going to buy anything on there. And people have. And I so I started like, they came kind of quickly. So I've been trying to like thank people as I go. Um, but uh, which I think what I should do is go live and show things. Absolutely. Because that way people can then be incentivized that people that want to be featured on the live can then say, oh, I should buy Delta something on her wish list so that I can see it in the live. I think that would be fun. But I made the link tree. And then also people go, people always say drop the Venmo. And I always felt weird about doing that because... I wanted people to get something, not just me like saying, hey, give me money. But um, so I always felt like during the pandemic when I would do I would do these like one woman show things where it was like a scripted thing or I would do um, I wrote like a, an erotic flash fiction and I read it. Um, and then so I put the Venmo there and people were I felt like at least I'm giving you something that I wouldn't normally do. So if you so choose. But now I'm like, fuck it. I put the Venmo up in the in the in the bio and if people want to put it in there. Baby, I will take it. I like to buy my glasses. And you're on Cameo, so people can absolutely check you out on Cameo. Yes, that's like my favorite. I love making Cameo videos. Everyone does them differently. Mine are always in drag because you know me in drag. So I'm not going to make one out of drag. I've had people request them to personally not be in drag because of the message. And so that was fine with me. But I'm always going to get in drag, even if it's a week where I only have one. I'm like, well... You waited till the last minute to get your week of cameos in. You only got one. You better get drag, bitch. So I'm the creator who likes to shoot my cameo video on my camera roll. And then I run it through a full video editing process. I want my skin as smooth but realistic as possible. You know, the teeth could go up 30% whitening for sure. All that storyline. Um, so that happens. And then there are times if you ever notice if you get a cameo from me and maybe there's like a flash of rainbow or something running across. It's because makeup is on my top and I don't want people to see that. So I'll put like happy birthday or something. It's that deep for me. <laughs> and these videos, my videos, again, Evan, we were probably supposed to be done two hours ago, but you know, I talk too much and I'm sorry. Don't apologize. I love it. And Cameo will send me a message. Take 30 seconds out of your day to make someone's dream happy. And I'm like, 30 seconds? You're like, I need three minutes. I say, have to. I can't stop talking. 
But that's the great thing because sometimes I feel like there are people on Cameo where who I think are phoning it in. It's very clear that like they're doing this to cut the check. And I think part of the appeal of someone like you with something like Cameo is the actual joy you derive from it, which in turn has the people that receive it drive their own joy. So it's the most wonderful place. Um, Delta, I adore you. I have been a fan of yours for as long as I have known you exist. I think you are fantastic. I want to encourage people to backlog and mainline Very Delta. It is the preeminent talk show that exists right now. And thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I couldn't ask for a better guest. Thank you for having me. I love you. Shut up, Evan. Oh, shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.